The Trudeau Liberals delivered their first budget since before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic with an eye to post-pandemic recovery. But it also shows the government eyeing an election. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Parliamentary Bureau Chief and National Post columnist John Iveson joins me to discuss the spending priorities of the budget, what it means for Canada's bottom line long term, and how it potentially disadvantages Trudeau's biggest rivals come election time. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Definitely leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, John, the Liberals unveiled their first budget in more than two years, and it's full of big spending. At more than 700 pages, the average Canadian isn't going to read the whole document, so I was hoping we could run through some of the top-line numbers first. In terms of bare dollar value, how big is this budget? And how much of it is deficit spending? Well, it's a, a leviathan. I mean, a, a goliath. Any other euphemism you want to use to express size in, in terms of the size of the document or in terms of the, the amount of spending? Where do you want to start? We can start with the expenditure side. Now, people have quoted $100 billion over three years, but actually the total spending is $143 billion over the entire period, which is a six-year period, mm-hmm. all of which is deficit expenditure. So this is all borrowed money. And overall, like, where does that put us in terms of debt in the long term? So when Justin Trudeau came to power, the federal debt was $615 billion. And by the end of this projected period, which is 2025-26, the federal debt will be $1.5 trillion. So that's not only doubling, but on the way to tripling the size of the national debt. Looking at this past year with all of the extra spending the government did due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I think the deficit for the year that we're ending is looking at about $350 billion. Now, the deficit for this year is down somewhat, but it still is a lot of red ink. So when is it the Liberals think that they're going to balance the budget again? Well, the projections, you know, which I think should be taken with a pinch of salt, and I'll explain why in a second. But uh, the projections are that it's $354 billion dollars for the year just passed, 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. which you can argue, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic, we had to support incomes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would argue that we exceeded what we needed to spend. I mean, we were the biggest spender in the G7, in part because the federal government spent more on income replacement than was lost in income. I mean, the savings rate went from $1,500 in 2019 to $10,000 in the first three quarters of last year because the federal government was shoveling out so much money and people were socking it away. Yeah, The government recognized this and Christy Freeland said it's preloaded stimulus, <laughs> which kind of you would have thought meant there was no need for any more spending in this budget. But yet the deficit is projected to be another $154 billion next year, 59 the following year, 51 35 30 by the end of this horizon. So down to 30 billion, but no sign that we would get back to balance. I mean, I guess the implication is that if we kept on this downward trajectory, that at some point the economy goes back into balance. But just yesterday, the day after the budget, Justin Trudeau came out and said that the government is already committed to health transfers to the provinces. And what does that add to it? Well, that doesn't come cheap. We don't know because he says we'll have to uh, sit down and talk about what we're going to give. <laughs> but wouldn't you think that if you're about to give a historic budget, a giveaway budget, which everybody got a chicken in their pot, that you might try and include the health transfers, which the provincial governments want to go from somewhere around 
22% of all healthcare spending to around about 35%. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know another $100 billion. So can you take any of these projections at face value, given the fact that the Prime Minister has already said that he's committed to increasing transfers to the provinces on a recurring and long-term basis? It kind of boggles the mind because the bottom line to all of this is that it's all sustainable if your growth rates are higher than your long-term interest rates. Yeah. In the history of Canada, generally they have been. But there was a 20-year period, 1980 to 2000, where they weren't. The reverse was the case, where long-term borrowing costs were much higher than growth rates. And that was the direct result of 26 years of deficit spending, Mm -hmm. most of it under Trudeau's father. And suddenly you've got sky-high interest rates you know, people will remember mortgage rates that went up to 20%. Yeah. And anemic growth rates. Now, anybody who looks at this scenario where we've now been in uh, deficits for six years and we're going to be in deficits for another six is going to start thinking that history is likely to repeat itself. For sure, in this scenario that was painted in the budget, the 10 year government bond for the five year period, 20 to 20, 2020 to 25, is 1.9%. And the nominal growth over that period is 3.5%. So we're okay. Uh, It's sustainable as far as this is concerned. Mm -hmm. But let's say there's another recession. Or let's say the government decides it's going to give the provinces a huge whack of cash for health transfers. Then suddenly the inverse becomes the case. And our children pay for this. Our grandchildren are going to pay for this. this. This is borrowed money. And it's being handled in a reckless fashion, I would argue. You mentioned children. One of the big pieces in this fiscal plan is the notion of a federal child care program. And the Liberals say that within five years, there will be a program that costs families just $10 per day per kid. But what is the cost to the federal treasury in the long term to bring in a program like this? Well, they, it was earmarked to be $30 billion over the five-year period to get it set up. And then who knows, because it's negotiated with the provinces. I'm less concerned about the child care program because in theory, at least, it should attract more women into the workplace. Mm-hmm. Certainly, that was the experience in Quebec. And if you do that, then you've got more taxpayers and you know the expenditure is not simply money being shoveled out the door by Ottawa. Yeah, But clearly an expensive program, one designed to win votes, particularly female votes. And the whole budget was presented as stimulating and sparking growth. I'm not sure how much growth will be sparked by this uh, particular policy. The, I think in the Somewhere in the budget, it earmarks 0.05% as the growth impact. Mm-hmm. But it's not simply a, a, an expenditure. It is something that might yield some revenues at the same time, unlike some other programs. So, I mean, you, if you want to go down that way, there are... <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I guess, like, what else stuck out in the budget for you? You talk about this This isn't the kind of thing where it's just shoveling cash out, but what else is there in the budget that looks like it's just kind of shoveling cash out the door? Well, I think, you know, most budgets are exercises in choices. The British politician Nigel Lawson once said, to govern is to choose. To appear to be unable to choose is to appear to be unable to govern. (laughs) And I think that that is very apt in this case because no choices were made. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like the choice between ice cream and chocolate cake. We'll have both. And then after that, we'll have some more of it because no hard decisions were made. It's clearly an election budget. One telling indicator was the fact that seniors over 75 are going to get $500, a one-off $500 payment in August. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of September, the government is going to wind down the uh, Canada recovery benefit and the employment wage subsidy. 
Now, that would seem to me that they're telling that the sweet spot is an election in September between giving people money and taking it away. One of the things you mentioned before is this is obviously a growth budget, a budget with an eye to economic recovery, and it devotes a lot of money to that. I think you said off the top it was somewhere around $101 billion. Where is that money all going? Like some of it's the childcare plan, some of it's infrastructure. Like where do we see that $101 billion go? I would just clarify, it positions itself as a budget that is geared to future prosperity. Yeah. I think that's false advertising. There are parts of it that may yield some growth. You know, for example, there's $7.2 billion over seven years devoted to the Strategic Innovation Fund, which would pump money into projects in life sciences, automotive, aerospace, agriculture. There is money for artificial intelligence, for national quantum computing, for genomics. You know, all of these things, in theory, again, should, if you put money into the right project and spend it wisely, which is a big if, given the federal government's track record. But if you do it, then it should produce a return. But nobody, nobody, especially Christian Freeland, can say what that return will be. Yeah. Nobody can judge whether there'll be real growth generated by this. You would hope there would be, given the amount of money being handed down. But that's why it's a blend of ideas that might produce yields and ideas that almost certainly won't. They're really not investments, although they call them investments, it's simply a redistribution of existing funds or a redistribution of, in this case, borrowed funds. Mm-hmm. You know, For example, the employment insurance sickness benefit is going to be increased. At the same time, in the, in the small print at the back of the budget, it reveals that the EI premium rates are going to go up post-2023. And that's a tax on everybody who works. Yeah. So there's more to this budget than meets the eye. It's not what it says it is. And I think that people should be deeply suspicious about any government that says we can't afford not to do this because interest rates are so low. Mm-hmm. Any politician who says that ahead of an election should be treated with deep skepticism. The idea of getting the economy going, you hear this from governments all over the place when you've dealt with something like the pandemic recession that you know we need to help stimulate the economy, get things back on track. But we're already starting to see indications that the economy is already recovering. So with that in mind, is the kind of stimulus the government has in mind in its budget necessary? No. Freeland's comment about preloaded stimulus was a clue to that. The economy is likely to slingshot as soon as the uh, restrictions are lifted and people are allowed to travel and spend. I mean, we know that they've got the firepower in their savings accounts. You know, I think that there are going to be some businesses and some sectors that are going to require more help than others. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously tourism and uh, hospitality and the restaurant business, some of these industries are going to require help and perhaps in the form of training of staff for new jobs. So there is a role for government. I don't disagree with some of the spending on moving towards net zero. For example, there are um, tax incentives for carbon capture and sequestration. So that, you know, plants that produce carbon dioxide, that, that carbon dioxide is captured and stored. There are some good things in here. I mean, when you spend 143 billion dollars, you would hope there'd be some useful ideas in it. But I just think that the overall ambition of it, it didn't need to be this big. There was a lot of speculation going into this budget that it was going to be an election budget. And while we're unlikely to see an election before Canada Day, given everything that's going on with COVID-19 and the third wave, this is obviously the blueprint that Justin Trudeau is going to take before voters. 
who are the biggest targets of this budget? Is it voters in a specific area? Is it a specific demographic of voter? Who's he looking at here? Yeah, I mean, if you look where the money's spent, that tells you everything. So childcare, if you look at the proportion of women who support the Conservative Party, it, I've never seen it as bad, as as imbalanced as it is right now. For whatever reason, Erin O'Toole has just not resounded with women voters. You add in this childcare policy, and I think that that's going to, going to really work for Trudeau, particularly when you look at, there was a table in the in the budget which suggested where the highest cost areas for childcare are. Mm-hmm. You could almost reel them off as target conservative seats. Toronto, downtown, obviously, Richmond Hill, Brampton, Mississauga, Oakville, all these seat-rich Ontario ridings. Another area, obviously, is uh, seniors. Not only is there the $500 one-off payment, but if you're over 75, you're going to see an extra $800 per year indexed to inflation. Mm -hmm. These are glittering prizes that are going to be waved in front of the electorate come election time. On the childcare thing, Christy Freeland keeps referring to this window of opportunity that was presented by the pandemic, which I think is in poor taste in the first place. But it presented a window of opportunity for childcare because so many women lost their jobs and uh, it was directly because they had to stay home and look after their kids. The data does not back up that narrative. At the moment, and certainly in the February employment numbers, female unemployment for core workers, which is 25 to 54-year-olds, was lower than it was for men. Hmm. The big fall in employment was the uh, 15 to 24-year-old females, most of whom are not mothers because the average age for first-time mothers is 29. Yeah. Given the fact that this childcare money needs to be negotiated bilateral agreements with every province, which is going to take some time, it's certainly going to take longer than any of the women who are thrown into unemployment by the pandemic, it's going to take longer than they're prepared to wait for a new job. So again, the, the whole spin that was put on this is false advertising and people shouldn't buy it. We're in a minority parliament. And so the Liberals are going to need the support of one of the other three main parties to avoid falling this spring. You know, this is an election budget. The the NDP and the Conservatives are going to need to campaign against this budget ostensibly. Do either of them support the budget now and then prop up the government for a couple more months until we get into the election period? Or is the government going to fall this spring and then we go to the polls sooner than later? I, like, how does that work here? Jagmeet Singh raised the white flag before the budget was even delivered (laughs) and uh, has confirmed that he will support the budget. So there's no suspense as to whether the budget will pass. He is in a real bind over this budget because it spends so much money that it's very hard to argue against. I mean, most of his supporters will be delighted with this budget. It doesn't bring in a universal basic income. It doesn't bring in pharmacare. Those are really the only avenues that he has to uh, attack it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, while there's no universal basic income, there are billions of dollars for low-income workers in tax relief, the Canada low-income benefit, I think it's called, or the workers' benefit. When you add that to the $27 billion Canada child benefit and the soon-to-be increased Canada pension plan, you essentially have a universal basic income for most age groups. And this was the way it was designed. The government has been working on this plan since it was elected in 2015. The idea was that you would prop up low-income workers, you would prop up families, and you would prop up seniors through a, an enhanced Canada pension plan. And therefore, there was no need to bring in UBI because it's there already. Is it a case that in an election that the Conservatives have a bit more room to maneuver on campaigning against this budget than the NDP does? Well, not a whole lot, because I think so many people are coming out and saying they love the budget, and why wouldn't they? 
we all love having money spent on us. Uh, it's only when you take a step back and think, well, where did the money come from? Well, it was borrowed. Well, do we have to pay it back? Well, at some point, we have to pay it back. At some point, we have to renegotiate our borrowings to continue rolling over the amount that we already owe. Mm-hmm. While they say low interest rates and growth will, will outpace our, the interest rate, that is true. But if you look at how much we're going to spend on interest, it actually doubles. It's going to be $40 billion by the end of this horizon. And that is more than we spend on any single policy area, with the exception just about of health transfers and money to seniors. But, you know, that's a whacking amount of money that's just going to pay down debt. So, yeah, I think the Conservatives, they're in a hole too, because how do you attack it? You can attack it on the grounds of fiscal irresponsibility, but that cannot be proven until long after Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland have exited the political scene. I mean, it's going to be 20 years before we know the full extent of the damage that has been done by this budget. And so you expect we'll be going to the polls after Labor Day? Well, that seems to be the implication of the one-off payment to seniors. I mean, this is 3.3 million seniors who are going to get $500. So they're going to be pretty well disposed towards the government. That's a lot of votes. We'll be keeping an eye on that over the summer and hope we, you know, as far as the pandemic goes, we're out of the woods in time for an election. John, thanks for your time. Great. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, John Iveson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.